just so grateful to worship with you guys today and um, come in on a day in which things are a little bit unexpected. As many of you know, the, the plan was to, to teach through the Gospel of John in such a way that I would preach two weeks and then um, Alan would preach two weeks. And as, as you all were notified, I'm sure if you're here for Sunday school, um, there was an emergency that took place. Uh, Dear brother, Larry Swift, uh, is in the hospital right now, and um, Alan has been doing a tremendous job ministering to that family over the past 24 hours, and um, I'm grateful to be able to fill in this week and uh, preach a sermon that, quite frankly, I, I prepared it over two years ago, and I never had the opportunity to preach it to a, um, to a group of Christians, and uh, just to give you a backstory of of why I'm here today and, and, and what I'm going to attempt to do with this sermon. Um, in 2020, beginning of 2020, before the whole COVID-19 pandemic took place, I had an opportunity to go to a retirement center in Dallas and preach on Sunday nights. And the goal of that Sunday night ministry was to present the gospel of Jesus Christ on a regular basis to people who were at the end of their life, right? They're, they're in the last stage of their life, days, months, weeks, maybe years, but in any case, these people are in a retirement home. They are preparing for eternity. And the title of that uh, Sunday night ministry at the retirement home was literally titled From Here to Eternity. Uh, kind of a fitting title given the circumstance and the context of that retirement home ministry. So literally the week that COVID-19 hit and everything shut down in DFW, uh, that, that was the week I was going to go and preach this particular sermon. So I never got to preach it. I actually never got to do anything with that ministry. But in God's providence, here we are. We're, we're more than two years since I initially prepared this sermon. And for whatever reason, on October 16th, 2022, God wanted me to preach this sermon and he wanted me to preach it to you. Now, I know many of you are believers and as Martin Luther said, even believers need to preach the gospel to themselves every day. So I know that a lot of this will probably be um, stuff that you already know. It'll be a lot of reiteration of truth that you already know and believe and cling to and hold dear as believers. But maybe there's someone here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And this particular sermon can hopefully point you to Christ. It's going to be thoroughly gospel-centered. It's, it's, it's not anything devoted to a particular text. This is going to be a topical sermon. There's going to be a lot of different passages of Scripture that I'm going to cite throughout the course of our time together this morning. But in any case, I hope that God would use it to bless your soul. And um, as I told Alan before the sermon, when we preach, we preach for the glory of God and for the good of God's people. But in a very real sense, I, I really want to dedicate this time together today to, to Brother Larry, a man who I love and have gotten to know over the past two years, and Alan has known him as a father for the past three decades. So um, I really hope God will move in power during our time together today. I hope he'll strengthen me to preach in a way that honors him, feeds your soul, and also will honor Brother Larry as well. So as we get started this morning, I want to begin with a proposal, a proposal to set the stage for where we're going to go for the rest of our time together today. I want to propose that there's no greater issue for you and for me to work out in our soul than these two questions. Two of the most important fundamental questions that you and I could ever try to work out 
in our soul. The first question is this. How can we know God? I don't think there's a greater question that a human being can ask or think about than this. How can I know God? And secondly, what happens after we die? How can I know God and what's going to happen to me after I die? Is this life all that there really is? Or is there more? If you look throughout the course of human history, there have been many ideas that have been advanced as to how those two questions can be answered. You look on social media today. You listen to the the hot takes from political pundits and and culture analysts. They'll, They'll give you all kinds of ways in which they go about answering man's relationship to God or how they go about addressing the question of what happens after we die. But my friends, these two foundational questions, they're inescapable. No matter who you talk to, somebody has an opinion about what happens after we die and how can man know God if God even exists in the first place. I thought it would be helpful to sort of paint a broad picture of how some of the most prominent world religions go about answering these questions. Before we look at these questions from a Christian perspective, let's just take a step back and let's see how these questions are addressed by literally billions of people who adhere to the most prominent religions in the world. First religion that I want us to survey today is that of Islam. Islam. Second largest world religion. Um, Recent estimates have it at 1.8 billion people in the world that embrace Islam. Second largest religion behind Christianity. Most estimates would give you somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 to 2.3 billion adherents to Christianity. But Islam is a very prominent religion in the world, particularly outside of North America. If you leave North America, you go to Europe, you go to the Middle East, you go to other parts of the world, even South America and Africa. Islam has a prominent hold in culture. And at its most basic level, Islam teaches this. How can we know God? God is largely impersonal and unknowable. He is so transcendent. He's so aloof. Man cannot personally know Allah, says the Muslim. The idea of having a personal relationship with God, the idea of calling God Father as we do as Christians, it's blasphemy to the Muslim. God is transcendent. He cannot be known by man. Moreover, in the Islamic faith, the Quran is said to be the book that contains all of the information that mankind needs to think and to live. Basically, in the Quran, if you were to boil Islam down, and this might be an oversimplification, but if you were to boil Islam down to its core, you'll find that the teachings of God, the teachings of Allah, they were mediated, they were handed down through the chief prophet of Islam, which is Muhammad. And they were recorded in the Quran. And in the final analysis, as long as you do more good works than bad works, you will have paradise after you die. You will enter into eternal paradise if you can find a way to do more good works than bad works. You're not going to know God personally. You're not going to have an intimate relationship with Him. But you will experience something something great, something glorious, something of value after life on this earth. There will be paradise waiting for you. It's a works-based system of religion with an impersonal God. That brings us to the next 
largest religion in the world. Um, it's number two in my outline, but it's the third largest religion in the world. And this might shock you, but it's atheism. Atheism. Some of you might be thinking, do you? Atheism is really not even a religion. They don't believe in a God. They don't believe anything happens after death. Well, my friends, really, at the, at, at the, at the bottom line, of the bottom line, you think about atheists, what are they ultimately doing? They're worshiping themselves. That's atheism at its core. Atheism is the belief that man and man alone is the highest power and the highest authority in their life. John Piper has said it best. Man will ultimately worship something or someone. The question is what or who? For the atheist, they worship me, myself, and I. There is no God in their framework. There is no God in their worldview. An atheist, of course, believes since there is no God, there is no eternity, there is no paradise, there is no hell. You're here, eat, drink, and be merry, and then you cease to exist. And tragically, 1.2 billion people are estimated to be atheists today. A seventh of our world's population are either outright ardent atheists or they don't adhere to any religion at all. So think about that. A seventh of the world doesn't believe in God. They don't believe in anything after death. And if you look at millennials, my generation, and those younger, we have some millennials, we have some people who are younger here today, this is the fastest growing religion in our world. It's attractive to young people. This is why we need to be vigilant in taking the hope that is the gospel to a lost and dying world, lest more people embrace this faulty religion. Fourth largest religion in the world, number three on my outline, but fourth largest religion in the world is Hinduism. And this sounds weird to us because we're on the west side of the world. We're in a highly sophisticated, highly intellectual culture. But Hinduism is very prominent on the eastern side of the world. And Hinduism, by estimates, claims some 1.1 billion adherents. It's it's regarded as one of the oldest religions in the world. And if you go to the east, it's the most prominent religion in the east, other than Christianity and some sects. Even Christianity, when when it's outlawed, it's even more vibrant than Hinduism. But Hinduism, by and large, is the most prominent eastern religion that you're going to run into. And then the second is Buddhism, which we'll look at in just a few moments. But what's Hinduism? How does Hinduism address how man can know God? How does Hinduism view the afterlife, if there even is one at all? Well, according to Hinduism, there's four goals of human life. Hinduism, in a nutshell, can be boiled down to four basic goals. At the end of the day, there's dharma, number one. Dharma, it means to form a sense of ethics and duty to guide our lives. So that's their morality, Dharma, Artha, second goal of life, is to discover prosperity in this life. So to to, to discover satisfaction for life experience. That's the second key goal of Hinduism. Third, Kama, not Karma. I know it's a weird word, but K-A-M-A, Kama. It means to explore the world. So uh, if Artha is to discover prosperity in this life, to discover satisfaction in this life, Kama is go out and and, and explore, discover. It's kind of two sides of the same coin here. If you're going to discover prosperity, says the Hindu, we need to go out and explore the world. You need to figure out what works and what doesn't work for you. And then lastly, and most importantly for Hinduism, is moksha, M-O-K-S-H-A. Really weird term. Uh, again, yeah, the East is so much different culturally and religiously than we are here in the West. But moksha is really at the heart of Hinduism. Moksha 
is discovering salvation or liberation from endless cycles of rebirth. That's the basic crux of Hindu thought. You and I are in an endless cycle of reincarnation. And the only way we can escape this endless cycle is by attaining moksha. Well, the problem is nobody in Hinduism really knows how one can attain moksha. So there's no objective way, there's no solution to this endless cycle of reincarnation, as it were. It's just going to happen at some point, assuming you get the other three goals right. So what happens after we die? Well, we're going to be continually reincarnated until somehow or another we escape this endless cycle. And then what about God in Hinduism? Well, there's over 33 million gods in their pantheon of deities. So you can forget about having a relationship with God. You can't even keep track of all the different gods that are in Hinduism. It's a really fascinating and complex religion. Um, there's a reason why I think when you're studying world religions as a high school student, you start learning all these things. You're like, I can't even wrap my mind around this. There's just no way that a devout Hindu is going to be able to do that either. But the last world religion that I want us to look at by way of introduction, and then we'll, we'll attack our two key questions from a Christian perspective today. Buddhism. I mentioned it just a few moments ago. Buddhism, it is the, um, the fourth largest religion, excuse me, the fifth largest religion. It's four on my outline, but Buddhism is the fifth largest religion in the world. Just over half a billion adherents in the world. Uh, largely based off the thought of Gautama Buddha. Buddha was a philosopher who lived between the years 500 and 400 B.C., so before Christ came, he was alive. And nobody knows the exact years in which he lived, but most scholars and historians will agree, sometime between 500 and 400 B.C. It's interesting, Buddha's name literally means enlightened one. And that's really the goal of Buddhism as a whole. In Buddhism, the foundational Goal, the principal objective for the Buddhist is to attain enlightenment in this life. Kind of a mystical thought. What is really enlightenment? Well, that's the goal of Buddhism. They don't really define enlightenment, but you want to be enlightened. I guess you want to gain knowledge. You want to gain truth as it pertains to you. There's really no transcendent meaning or purpose. You just want to be enlightened about the world around you. Now, what's interesting about Buddhism is that there's debate amongst Buddhists. Some believe that we're going to, like the Hindus, we're going to undergo continual cycles of rebirth throughout the course of eternity. But others believe there is actually an eternal destination after death. There's not a whole lot of information about that, but Buddhists really, that they believe that after man dies, you're either going to continue to be reincarnated or you're going to go somewhere. They don't really know where. They don't have much information about that, but there is debate nevertheless amongst Buddhists on this principle. So, by way of overview, probably oversimplified in a few ways, but based on uh, some of the apologetics resources that I used in putting together this sermon, these are the basic foundational tenets of religions two through five in the world. Islam, number two, atheism, number three, Hinduism, number four, and Buddhism, number five. These are the five most prominent religions in the world. Did you catch the common denominator with each of them? Think about those two questions I gave us right off the bat to consider. What was the common theme with these four religions? Well, did any of them provide a satisfactory answer for how man can have a personal relationship with God? Not at all. 
And did any of them really have a satisfactory answer as to what happens after man dies? I mean, I think Islam might have had the most satisfactory answer, but since you don't have a personal saving relationship with God, it's altogether futile. Think about this, my friends. Four of the five largest religions in the world, billions of people alive today, entrapped in each of those different religions. And they can't even figure out in some cases who God is, if there is a God, and what happens after we die. Think about all the ambiguity that exists in this world today. All the confusion. Literally people, souls, people who've got family members, friends, jobs, they're just like you and me. And they go through their whole life and they can't even answer the two most important questions that any human being can resolve. Namely, how can we know God and what happens after we die? By God's grace, we're not left in the darkness as Christians, are we? When considered holistically, there is only one religion in the entire world that can offer mankind with satisfactory and objective, unchanging answers to those two key questions. How can I know God and what happens after I die? Only one religion in the whole world. It's the religion whose Lord and Savior said the very words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's Christianity, my friends. Christianity and Christianity alone can satisfactorily answer the two most important questions that humanity can ever hope to answer in this life. And Christianity and Christianity alone will transform lost and perishing sinners like you and me into new creations. Every religion in the world teaches you must do this, 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 this in order to be acceptable before God. Christianity teaches God being rich in mercy. He will transform you supernaturally from the inside out. He will make you into who you've been created to be. And there's nothing you can do to earn or deserve it. He's the one who makes you worthy. He's the one who sets his love upon you to renew you, to transform you, and to draw you to himself in a personal saving relationship. That's Christianity. And that's why I've titled today's sermon, Your Only Way to Know God. Because in the final analysis, there is no other way to know God apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the Christian faith, apart from biblical Christianity. Man's only hope of knowing God, man's only hope of entering into everlasting and eternal paradise, everlasting life after death, is found exclusively in the Christian faith. It's rooted and grounded in what has been historically called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as I said by way of introduction, many of you guys here know the gospel. You've shared the gospel probably thousands of times in the case of some of you. You've led people to Christ. Is this not to return to vacation Bible school today just to talk about the gospel? Well, my friends, I trust you'll be blessed as you celebrate the magnitude of what God has done for us through this gospel, through this good news. Let me set it before you today. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's just refresh our memory. What is the gospel? What's the central message that's been championed by Christians for the past 2,000 years? Let me give it to you in an elaborate fashion. The gospel, here's the the punchline of, of the presentation. The gospel is the good news that God himself gives himself in order to save sinners from himself. You want a one-sentence vacation Bible school, four-year-old explanation of the gospel that you can pull out and unpack? Here it is. The gospel is the good news that God himself 
gives Himself in order to save sinners from Himself. We are a rescued people. We are a blood-bought people. We are the recipients of the greatest rescue mission that will ever unfold in the, in the scope of human history. Angels and all the saints will sing for eons in the future about God accomplishing the redemption of lost and perishing sinners to His own glory and to our eternal joy in Christ. My friends, the Gospel is the good news that the second person of the triune God, Jesus Christ, He was born of a virgin. He took on flesh. He lived a perfect life without sin. And this God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, He died on a Roman cross after living that perfect life without sin. He died on a Roman cross, and on that cross, He bore God's wrath in the place of every sinner who would ever believe. He perfectly saves every person who would ever believe. He drinks the cup of God's wrath in the place of those whom God gave Him from before the foundation of the world. He says, go into that world, that lost and sin-cursed world, and you rescue this remnant of sinners, and you make them your bride, and you clothe them in your perfect righteousness. And my son, you pay their penalty at the cross. And Jesus did that perfectly. We, those who are deserving of eternity in hell, we get the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us as a gift through faith in Him. And at the cross, Christ, who in and of Himself, He's the only one who lived a perfect life. He's the only one worthy of worship and adoration and celebration. He was treated on that cross as if He lived your life and my life. And the life of every sinner who would ever believe. He drank the fullness of the cup of God's wrath and He did it willingly. He went to that cross so that you might never know anything but the Father's smile and embrace. He did that for you if you were in Christ today. And after His death, the story doesn't end there. Not only did the second person of the eternal Trinity come into this world and live a perfect life without sin, not only did He die a dreadful death by crucifixion, mind you. But even more than that, even more dreadful than crucifixion, he not only drank the fullness of God's wrath at the cross, but then, three days after his death, he did something that's, that, that's inconceivable to imagine. I mean, how many of you guys have gone to a graveyard and seen people rise from the dead? How many of you guys have seen that happen? This God-man, Jesus, Nazareth, he rose victoriously from the grave three days after his death, and he declared victory over sin, Satan, and death itself. And he not only did those things, but he appeared to more than 500 witnesses, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. And he told his apostles, and he told his earliest disciples, you go and take this message into all the ends of the world and watch how my spirit will transform this world. Watch how I will take people just like you, people who were undeserving, people who were regarded by the world as nothing. You guys are foolish you're unimpressive. You don't offer anything really of value to society. But you're the ones who God is going to save. You're the ones whose God is going to use to turn the world upside down. Because God takes the foolishness, or excuse me, He takes the wisdom of this world and He makes it foolish. And He takes the foolishness of this world and He uses it to exalt His own wisdom. That's the gospel, my friends. If you're here today and you're in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, life, death, and resurrection... You have been sent on mission by God, by your Heavenly Father, 
to go and to change this world through proclaiming this message and living it out amongst your friends and family members and co-workers. You can proclaim to a lost and dying world the only way to know God and the objective way to have a relationship with Him for all of eternity future. You know it without a shadow of a doubt. This is the only hope for humanity. So I've given you a gospel presentation now. Let's unpack it a little bit. Over the past few weeks in our study of John, maybe I've belabored this a bit too much. I'm sorry if I have, but I'm big on understanding terms. I I don't like it when I hear a term or I use a term. I really don't understand what it means. I, I haven't really thought through what it means. And what I've found from my own life and from experiencing other Christians who have, who have taken terms that they really didn't understand and then they understand it, it's like a light bulb goes off and it changes everything. In fact, I remember today in Sunday school, there were some comments made that, you know, we, we learned today the significance as to why we meet on Sunday. We've been doing it our whole lives, but we just learned today some of the biblical and theological reasons for that. What's the same with the gospel? Maybe, maybe you're here today, you, you know the gospel, you've shared it, you've trusted in it. But you really don't know some of the key terms. You, you've never really stopped to think about, okay, how do, I, how do I explain? If somebody asks me about God or sin or Jesus, how do I really explain that? I know it. I trust it. I can, I can point out my, my scripture memory verses, but how do I share it with others in detail? Well, let's, let's go over some of those key terms today because if this is a gospel sermon and it's a topical sermon... I want to make sure that we do our due diligence to dive into some of the key details that undergird the biblical gospel. Let's start with the most important term. It's the start of the gospel, and it's probably, no question, the most important aspect of the gospel because it's something that most Christians in our society, I would say, get it fundamentally wrong, and that's God. Who's God? How does the Bible describe God? How does God relate to us as human beings? How is Yahweh, the Christian God, how is He different than Allah or all these other millions of false gods that comprise Hinduism or other religions in the world? Or even this, how is our Christian conception of God even different than our Jewish neighbors, right? How how do we make sense of this? Many in our society today, as we, as we saw from the Ligonier study that I cited a couple weeks back, they, they identify as Christians, but they really don't know how to answer these questions. They don't know who God is. They don't know what the Bible teaches about God. If put on the spot, they wouldn't be able to teach you anything meaningful about God. In fact, they'll probably tell you something wrong. So let's clarify it today so we don't make those errors and we have opportunities to evangelize. Who's God? Well, the first thing to know about how the Bible describes God is that He is the only God, and He's the one who created all things. Go read Genesis 1 and 2, John 1, 1 to 5. God and God alone exists as the one true living God, and God and God alone, He is the source of all things in creation. Everything in our understanding of who God is must start with the fundamental acknowledgement that God is creator and we are creature. You want to understand God properly? You've got to recognize He is creator. Everything else is a creature, including me. And as a result of that, that invokes great humility in us. When we recognize that God and God alone is the creator, we recognize that God and God alone has the authority and the right to tell us how to live. God and God alone has the authority and the right to tell us how to think about the world. And He's done that so clearly in Scripture. He's given us a way 
to interpret and to analyze and understand the world in which we live. But what about the character of God? So God and God alone is the source of creation. He's creator. He has the right and authority to tell us how to live. Let's talk about his character. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Key text. Highlight it. Read, on, read it. Reflect on it. Pray over it. I mean, it is a remarkable passage regarding the character of God. It should cause your heart. If you're a believer here today, and you should be fired up when you hear about the God that you serve, about the God that saved you. This is Him. And it comes from His own lips. He gives His own declaration about His character. He says He's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He abounds in love and faithfulness. And also at the very end of that text, He by no means allows the guilty to go unpunished. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, but He by no means allows the guilty to go unpunished. It's the character of God. My friends, there's not another creature like our God. He is in a class of himself. In fact, historically, theologians have, have coined a term, it's actually in the Bible as well, it's not a, just a, a, a random theological term, it's actually in Scripture. Historically, the, theologians have said that God is holy. He's other, he's set apart from his creation. He's set apart by virtue of being the only creator. He's also set apart because he's morally perfect and righteous. Because God is holy, he is completely distinct and separate from his creatures. He's the supreme being in reality, and he's in a class of his own. Key text to use if you're ever sharing the gospel or somebody asks you, where can you show me what you believe about God? How does Christianity teach about the character of God? Well, here are a few key texts. God's holiness, his otherness, his being set apart in his own being and his own moral perfection and purity. Isaiah 6.3. Isaiah 6.3. I think I've heard this quoted in Sunday school. Many of you guys haven't memorized. God is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's the only text in all of scripture where an attribute of God is exalted to the third degree. In other words, it's like saying that this is fundamental. This is central to God's Character, his being. If you were to summarize God with one word, this is the word to use. He's holy, holy, holy. He's set apart, set apart, set apart. He's morally perfect, morally perfect, morally perfect. That's the God that you and I serve. That's the character of the Most High. This might be a funny uh, scripture reference, but I always go to it because many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't study this part of the Bible a whole lot. Habakkuk 1.13. How many of you guys have read the book of Habakkuk lately? I'm raising my hand. I haven't. I haven't read it in a while. I have read it before, but, but not in some time. But this is a great text. Great text regarding the character of God. It says this. God's eyes are too pure to approve of evil, and he cannot look at wickedness with favor. So that, who's God? He is so morally upright. He's so pure. He cannot approve of wickedness. He can't look at evil with favor. He is holy, holy, holy. James 1.13 in the New Testament. Um, preached this text back in 2020. Great passage of scripture. James is a great book. If you, really, if you're looking for a book that gets to the heart of how should I live as a Christian, you know, you've got some great doctrine in books like Romans and Ephesians. But if you really want to get into the weeds of this is how day-to-day Christian living should look like, James is a great book. Great book for you. James 1.13 Speaking of God, 
It says that God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. In other words, God is not the author of evil or sin. Because God is so holy, he can't look at evil, he can't approve of evil. When I say look at it, he can't look at evil with favor. God cannot look at evil with favor, he cannot approve of evil, and he himself does not commit evil. He himself does not cause anybody to commit evil. Evil. That is how morally pure, that is how set apart God is in his character and in his being. So that's God. Okay. So going through a gospel, you start with God. Who is God? What's his character? How, how can man know God? Well, we're going to get to how man can know God next. To get there, let's look at sin. Sin. What does the Bible teach about sin? What are the consequences of sin? Why is sin such a big problem for human beings? What does it really mean for human beings to be sinful in the first place? Again, I've cited this now every time I've been in the pulpit. I promise you I I won't do this every time I preach. But uh, the Ligonier um, State of Theology Survey surveys self-identifying Christians all around the world. There is so much confusion today in the church. In the church. Not in the world. We would expect it in the world. But in the church. So much confusion about what sin is. A lot of people don't even believe that one sin is adequate grounds to send a sinner to everlasting judgment and hell. People who claim themselves to be Christians claim to know about the holiness of God. Over half of those surveyed think that God grades on the curve. They think that sin is really not that big of a deal. But my friends, the Bible makes it clear sin is a very big deal. It's why the world is so messed up in the first place. That's why we're so messed up in the first place. Because of sin. What does sin mean? Well, simply put, sin means to miss the mark. Very terse, simple explanation. VBS answer, right? Sin means to miss the mark. It's like if I'm trying to shoot an arrow right at that golden globe that I'm looking at, it's to miss it. I have missed the mark. I have failed to hit the target. That's sin. The target being perfect conformity to God's law and thought, word, and deed. I have failed to do that. You have failed to do that. Every person who's ever lived except for Jesus Christ has failed to do that. We have missed the mark. According to passages like Exodus 20, verses 1 to 17, and Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, write those down. don't have time to read through them today. Uh, Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verses 1 to 17, Romans 2, verses 12 to 16. Take those two texts together, you harmonize them, What you'll find is that, biblically speaking, sin is to violate God's law that's not only been written down on tablets of stone, or in our case, on our iPhone, or in our copy of God's Word that we carry with us to church. We've not only failed to live up to the explicit commandments of God, it goes even much deeper than that. And Jesus, of course, in his Sermon on the Mount, points this out as well. We've not only failed to obey what's been explicitly written, but we've also failed to live up to our conscience. And Romans 2, 12 to 16 teaches that God has written his law. He's he's essentially transcribed the Ten Commandments on the conscience of every person who will ever live. And as a result of that, Paul can conclude in that text, whether Jew or Gentile, everybody is without excuse. You know, you can go your whole life and never have a Bible, but you'll never live up to your conscience that has the Ten Commandments transcribed on them because you've been created in the image of God. And as a result of being created in the image of God, God has given you, literally within the fabric of your own being, a sense, a moral compass of what is right and what is wrong that lines up with the Ten Commandments. So we fail to live up to the Ten Commandments. We fail to live up to our 
own standard of conscience. But what if we went even deeper than that? What if I said, and it's not me saying this, this is what Jesus is saying, so I know I'm in safe company. But what if I said that you and I, we've never for a millisecond of our life done the most basic two commandments that God has ever required of man? One millisecond. Think about that. Not a single millisecond. Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. The two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that those two commandments, it fulfills the whole of God's law. Perfect love for God, perfect love for neighbor. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what God requires of us. That's how holy God is. He requires you and I to mirror His character. Perfect love and thought, word, and deed. Perfect love for name. We have never done that. We haven't even done those two things once in our life. That's how deep sin goes. That's how, if I can use the term, or the phrase rather, that's how messed up we are. That's how much we need grace. That's how much we need mercy. God will not grade on the curve. He is too morally pure to allow even the best of human beings to ever live just to skate on into heaven apart from Jesus Christ. Because even the best of our good works, Isaiah 64 says, they're like filthy rags before God. That's how pure He is. That's how righteous He is. You and I can't give anything to God because we're so sinful. We fall so short of His glory. If I could say it another way, we're not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we're sinners. Think about that. It's the heart. That's a key distinction. We are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we're sinners. Our sin originates. It comes forth from who we are as fallen creatures. A few more texts to give you before we move on to the grace, the great part of the gospel, the part that we are here to celebrate every time we gather together on the Lord's Day. Um, 1 Kings 8.46, again, uh, I, I do like sometimes to go to parts of the Old Testament that are a little less familiar just to show you, hey, it's not just the New Testament, it's not just the popular parts of Scripture, but it's all of Scripture, it's all pointing to the same truth. 1 Kings 8.46, very simply put, there is no man who does not sin, no man, no person, we've all sinned. We all need forgiveness. We all need grace. We all need mercy. Romans 3, 10 to 12. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. You know, in the context of that passage, the first three chapters of Romans, Paul is essentially, all he's trying to do is say, listen, I'm going to tell you about the gospel. Verses 1 to 17 of Romans, this letter is about the gospel. Gospel means good news, but before I can get to the good news, I've got to share with you the bad news. I've got to show you why you need good news. And for three chapters, Paul goes on and on and on. Man is sinful, man is sinful, man is sinful. Oh, and in case you didn't know, let me conclude this section right before I get to the good news. Let me just say this. None are righteous, not even one. No one seeks for God. And from God's perspective, if left to ourselves as sinners, man is useless, spiritually speaking. We don't fulfill the task, the purpose for which God created us if left to our sinful condition. Of course, Romans 6.23, the consequences of our sin, 
It's death. The wages of sin is death. Of course, the other part of that verse, the free gift, is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. But the wages, the consequences, the implications of sin, it's death. Physical death, we're all going to die if Christ doesn't return first. Spiritual death and hell, that is judgment. That's the eternal destiny for the non-believer. James 2.10. Dewey, maybe you're blowing this out of proportion. Sin can't be that big of a deal. God is loving. He's merciful. Joel Osteen says that God wants to make my life healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, after all. How can you say these things about God? Well, James 2.10 says, one sin. You want to know how holy God is? You want to know how big of a deal sin is? You commit one sin. You've broken the totality of what God's law requires, which is perfect obedience, thought, word, and deed. Perfect love for God, perfect love for neighbor. One transgression, you failed. God is too holy. He can't overlook it. So we've looked to the character of God. We've considered now the the weightiness and the significance of our own sin. And I hope by now you can see, I know many of you guys are familiar with the gospel. Put yourself in the shoes of someone who's hearing this for the first time. I have just, for lack of a better phrase, I've I've pretty much beaten you over the head. God is holy, holy, holy. uh, Man is sinful, 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 right? God is holy, holy, holy. Man is sinful, sinful, sinful. So what in the world am I going to do about this, right? How do I fix my situation? It's Jesus Christ. You and I don't fix our situation. Jesus is the solution for our situation. He's the remedy to our problem. God being rich in grace, mercy, and love, He offers us everything we could ever need, spiritually speaking, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we consider this at great length during our last time together. Did we not? Last Sunday we looked at the Ligonier Statement on Christology. We went through some pretty technical theological formulations of the person and work of Christ. I want to simplify that today because I know that could have been a lot. And just because in God's providence it fits with the sermon I prepared over two years ago, uh, I think it would be fitting to do that. I'm talking about the gospel. You've got to talk about Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus and let's get down to the meat and potatoes of who Jesus is. Who's Jesus? Well, he's first and foremost. He is truly, absolutely, 100% God. Got to start there. Who is Jesus? Somebody comes to you. Who is your Lord and Savior? Who is Jesus? What does the Bible teach about him? Well, you start off, he is God. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. Titus 2.13, he is the great God and Savior. That's what Paul says to Titus. Jesus is our great God and Savior. He is not just any God and Savior. He's a great God and Savior. Many places in the Old Testament, we find all these glorious attributes and titles that are given to God. Literally from Genesis to Malachi. All kinds of incredible descriptions of God that we read about and we marvel about. And then when we look at the Old Testament in light of New Testament revelation, and we find out that God is a triune being. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You mean everything that I read about God is everything that's true about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, of course. Jesus is that glorious, that powerful, that mighty, that worthy of praise. He's that same God. He's the second person of the Godhead with the Holy Spirit and the Father. Let me give you a few examples of how the New Testament affirms these realities. Write these down. Look at them at 
further consideration if you have time today or this week. Hebrews 1.6, going to be bouncing a lot here. But Hebrews 1.6, we are instructed to worship Jesus as God. Believers are instructed to worship Jesus as God. You want proof that Jesus is God? If the Bible tells you to worship someone, he's talking about God. He doesn't say worship angels. He doesn't say worship mankind. Those are great ways to, to actually get you condemned, uh, according to Galatians 1, 6 to 10. You, you reserve all worship and adoration and obedience principally to God. Hebrews 1, 6, worship Jesus as God. Acts 7, 59 to 60, we worship Jesus as God, but we also, according to this text, we pray to Jesus as God. Stephen's being martyred here. He's praying to Jesus as God. Of course, a great vision. He sees Jesus. He's not seated at the right hand. He's standing and he's welcoming his good and faithful servant into glory. Faithful unto death. Worship Jesus as God. We pray to him as God. We know from a few weeks back, I guess it's been three weeks now, John 1, 1 to 5. Great review here. Jesus is the source of creation. He's the creator. If Jesus is God... By definition, he's the creator, right? There's only one God. God, one being, eternally exists as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son of God. Therefore, he is the source of creation. He's the creator of all things. Mark 2, great text, really the whole chapter, but towards the end there, I don't have the exact verses written down. I didn't have this in my original manuscript here, but you read Mark 2, particularly the very end, what do you find? You find that Jesus, he does two things that are remarkable. He heals on the Sabbath, but he goes one step further. He also forgives sin. So he did, he did two of the biggest acts of blasphemy you could do in that first century context. He heals on the Sabbath, he works on the Sabbath, and then he also says, hey, the guy that I've healed, your sins are forgiven. And the Jews just lost their minds when he did that. Jesus had a habit of, of doing that with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And what does Jesus say? He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, I created the Sabbath. I get to do what I want on the Sabbath because I'm God. That is why. That's what he's getting at there. That's why I got really mad at him. Not only are they mad that he, um, he works on the Sabbath. That's bad enough. This guy, he claims the authority to forgive sins. He claims the authority to do whatever he wants on the Sabbath. He says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Are you kidding me? Who do you think you are? I'll tell you what he is. He's God. That's what we find throughout the pages of the New Testament. Lastly, last scripture I want to give you here um, about attributes or characteristics of God applied to Jesus in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Very important text among many. Think of Romans 14. I think of um, 1 Corinthians 3. Other texts that teach this as well. 2 Corinthians 5.10. All of mankind will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. God is portrayed as a judge throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Jesus is also portrayed as a judge in the New Testament. He says, I'm Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Jesus, every person, will appear before him and give an account for their life. Whether a believer or unbeliever, every person will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And be consigned, of course, to either heaven or hell, depending on if they came to faith in Christ in this life. Another great text, Philippians 2, 9-11. Not in my manuscript. I feel like I needed to share it, though. You think, what about those billions that adhere to these other religions? 
You know, they, they reject Christ their whole life. What about them? Well, guess what? You want to know what Paul says in that text? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every single sinner who has ever lived or will ever live, there will be a day where Christ will be vindicated. And you and my faith will be vindicated. We're laughed at during our lives. We're ridiculed. We're persecuted. Some of us might be put to death. That's been the testimony of church history. And people say, we believe what we believe. It doesn't matter. We reject Jesus. We're content in our own religion. Guess what? You know what's going to happen someday? They're going to bow to him. And they're going to say, you are Lord. You are Kyrios. You are the Most High God. My appeal to you today and to me today, make sure you bow on that day willingly and as his friend, not by force and in terror as his enemy. Make yourself right with God today. Trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior today. So the Bible is clear. Jesus is absolute deity. He is God. No question about it. Old Testament characteristics, traits, attributes. Apply to Jesus in the New Testament with his coming. Well, what else do we say about Jesus? Is he just God? Well, well, no, he's also a man. He is the God-man. Truly God, truly man. 100% God, 100% man. Two natures united in one person. You look at the New Testament. Many texts you can go to prove this as well. Let me give you a few of them. 1 Timothy 2.5, very clear text. Jesus, in that passage, he's called the man. Christ Jesus. He is the man, Christ Jesus. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. It's one of the, the, the key texts we like to read and we like to preach from and, and think about during Christmas time, right? We hear about the virgin birth of Christ in that text. We see that Jesus is identified as the Messiah in that text. He is a true man. Israel was looking for a human Messiah. Jesus was a human Messiah. Of course, he was also God in human flesh. But Jesus is a real man. Luke 2.52. I've got a two-month-old back there. Jesus, at one point in his life, he was like that, right there. He was a sinless baby. He, I don't even know what that looks like. I mean, what is it? What in the world would a sinless baby and a sinless child look like? I can only imagine. Some of you, and I'm sure I will in years to come, some of you wish that you had a few sinless babies of your own. But we find in Luke 2.52... That Jesus, he had to undergo the exact same maturation process as us. He didn't just come from heaven at 30 years old. Some say he was 33 when he started his ministry. About 30. He didn't come down as a 30-year-old ready to do the will of the Father. No, he grew up. He had to go through every progression of life. Infancy, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. He had to hit every major category of life so that he could atone for the sins of those who would be in each of those categories. Jesus grew up like us. He was truly man. Matthew 13, 55. Maybe some of you come from more humble or poor backgrounds. Jesus can sympathize with you. He was rich and is rich in his deity and glory. Right? According to the Psalter, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Jesus is rich in his deity, in his humanity. He's poor. He's humble. He had needs. He had to work. He had to support his family. Many scholars believe Joseph died at some point 
during Jesus, probably in his late teenage years, maybe early 20 years, Jesus had to go and support his mother and his, his younger siblings. He knew what it was like to work hard. He knew what it was like to have physical needs. That's the God you serve in Christ. John 4. He knew what it was like to be hungry, thirsty, tired. John 11, 35, the shortest book and all, or the shortest cha- uh, verse. I got there. Chapter John, uh, or excuse me, book John, chapter 11, verse 35. The very shortest verse in all of the New Testament. Jesus wept. When you're heartbroken, Jesus can sympathize with your heartbrokenness. When you go through a difficult time or experience, or a loved one goes through such, Jesus was there for some 30 years or so. Your God, your Lord and Savior can relate to you in your heartache, in your pain, in your troubles. So draw near to Him when those times come. Of course, most importantly of all, as truly man, Jesus, according to Hebrews 4.15, He can sympathize with all of our pain. He went through the normal maturation process that we all go through. I think everybody in here except for my daughter is um, just about at adulthood. So we've all been there. We've all done what Jesus experienced throughout His earthly life. But most importantly, He never sinned. He never sinned. There was never a moment in which Jesus, as the God-man, there was never a moment in which He modeled perfect conformity, perfect obedience in His thought, His words, His deeds, and His treatment of others. He never failed to model perfect obedience to what God requires of us. He never failed. Let me just make it simple. Jesus never failed to love God with all of His heart, soul, mind, and strength. He never failed to love God perfectly. He never failed to love his neighbor as himself. Jesus always responded perfectly to the situations that he was in in his life. If the situation demanded anger, Jesus had righteous indignation. If the circumstance demanded sorrow, Jesus was the perfect model of what it means to weep with those who weep. If it meant worshiping God, Jesus was impeccable in his worship of God. He's the God-man, Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and man, the only name given under heaven whereby man can be saved. If we're going to be a faithful Christian witness, we must know the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. We must be able to tell our friends, hey, because Jesus is God, He has the right to forgive you of sins. Because Jesus is man, His sacrifice was sufficient for you. He grew up like you did. Infancy, childhood, adolescent, adulthood. He knows everything that you're going to face in this life, temptation-wise. He can sympathize with you in every one of those hardships and every one of those life events. And because He's man, because He took on flesh, His work is sufficient for you. If you trust in Him, you will be saved. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Anyone else? Think about this for a second. If Jesus wasn't those things, if Jesus was not the way, the truth, and the life, if the Bible was all made up, 
me tell you what's at stake here. I want to make sure I lay my cards on the table. C.S. Lewis said there's only three ways you can explain Jesus. He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he's Lord. You're here today, my friends. You, ha- you are going to place Jesus in one of those three categories, depending on your response to the gospel. You either believe he's a liar. Think of, I mean, let's just think about this. If you don't trust in Jesus, you think he's either lying or the Bible's lying about who he is, or you think he's crazy. But in either way, you don't trust his own testimony. You don't trust the Bible's testimony. If you're an unbeliever, that's where you're at. That's where the world's at. Oh, yeah, he's a great moral teacher. He's a liar. Yeah, he's a great example. He's a liar. Atheist. Jesus was crazy. He hated homosexuals. He hated women. He's a lunatic. What gives him the right to claim to be the only way? What gives him the right to play God, said the first century Pharisees and Sadducees? He's a lunatic. He's crazy. He's a cult leader. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. You must decide for yourself. I must decide for myself. Where will I put Jesus? What will I do with this God-man? Is He the Lord of my life? Have I repented of my sin? That is, have I turned away from my sins and entrusted all of my life to His perfect care? Am I resting in Him and Him alone to enable me to have a personal saving relationship with my Creator? How can I know God, says the Christian, through Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior? What happens after I die? He's going to embrace me into His heavenly family. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We sang that so great today. What a, I was in tears. It's such a great hymn. Think about what Jesus offers humanity. He's Lord. You must do something with Him. Because if you're here today and you're not a believer or someone who's listening to this somehow online... Whoever's listening to this that's not here today, maybe years from now, you just stumbled upon this by happenstance. If he's not your Lord right now, you think he's a liar or you think he's a lunatic. You're in one of those camps. You're clinging to your sin. You're clinging to your autonomy. You're seeking identity and satisfaction in anything and anywhere else but Jesus. And you know what? Now is the day where that can all change. Scripture says, come, now is the day of salvation. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your soul. The Father, He says, I will clothe you with the perfect righteousness of my dear Son. And I will make you an adopted son or daughter. And I will transform your life from the inside out. I offer you endless and eons expressions of joy. Literally, you can't even count them. You can't even quantify. You can't even put your arms around what is offered freely to you if you would come to Christ. No one has ever, no one has ever come to Christ and regretted doing so. Will your life be hard? Absolutely. Will you be tempted? Absolutely. Will you be persecuted? Will you be regarded as fools? You better believe it. The world is continually getting worse. But my friend, what good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul for eternity? Come to Christ. Embrace Him as your own. Turn to Christ and live. He is your only way to know God. So before I close in prayer, I, I, I want to 
give a free invitation. Um, I know people have different ways of doing. I'm not a big altar call guy. I'll, I'll just I'll say that. But here's the thing. I don't know where everyone is here today. I don't know where you're at spiritually. I don't know what's going on in your life. If you need prayer, if you need counsel, if you have questions, whatever the case may be, I'll be over there by the exit door right there. Um, I guess that's where the um, kitchen's at, the uh, refrigerator. And we're going to close with a song, I believe. Yep, we're going to close with a song. So I'm going to pray. And then as soon as we're done... Uh, singing that song, if you have anything that you need, please come to me or come to one of the other men that you may know better at this church. But we want to help you today. If it means pointing you to Christ, we want to point you to Christ. If it means praying for you, we want to pray for you. This church will always be a refuge for you, regardless of what's going on in your life, regardless of what, um, what, what concerns or questions you have. This place will be a safe refuge for you and your family. And we hope and pray it will be a light to our community as well. So let me pray. And then uh, after we sing and we, conc- and we bring our service to conclusion, please find me. I'll be back there uh, or find one of the men. So let's pray and we'll, and we'll transition into our time of song. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and your love. Father, I, I mean, I just... It's a topical sermon and it's a review for a lot of us in here today, but... Your gospel, it'll preach in any church, it'll preach in any generation. It and it alone has the power to bring spiritually dead sinners to spiritual life. You are so kind, God. And we think we can do things on our own. We think that we are self-made and we think that we can just coast through life, satisfying the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And God even though that is our natural propensity, for those of us here today who are in Christ, you still sought us. You still sent your Son to redeem us. His perfect life, His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead, His ascension into heaven some 40 days after His crucifixion and appearing to all those witnesses. And God, we know from your word, He prays even now for us. I can't think of anything more humbling or more encouraging than that. I pray it encourages the people here today as well. That Christ, their Lord and Savior, for those that know you, their Lord and Savior is praying for them, cares for them, sympathizes with them. Oh God, that that, Lord, help that strengthen them this week. I don't know what everyone is going through. I know some. Give them strength, Father. Give them comfort. Remind them of who they are in Christ when they're tempted to think otherwise. When they're tempted to be overwhelmed by the cares of this world. Help them look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. And for those here today, Father, who don't know you, perhaps there's just one. Perhaps everyone here knows you. I don't know the state of their heart. But maybe there's someone listening as well who doesn't know you. Whatever the case, Father. If there's anyone listening to this right now as I pray, Father, do such a work in their heart to where they can't rest, they can't stop thinking about today's message, the gospel, until they yield to you. Because it's for their good, Father. Not because you're a tyrant, not because you're a cosmic killjoy, no God, because you and you alone provide sinners with a way to know you and a way to be forgiven of sin 
and spend everlasting life in your kingdom. God, that every one of us would know without a shadow of a doubt those two most important questions. We can answer them with confidence, with certainty, and then we can go from this place and take this truth to a lost and dying world. Give us the grace to do so, Father. May it be for your glory and our eternal good. And as we prepare to draw this service to a conclusion, Father, I do pray. I pray that you would keep us safe as we head home. I pray that you would prepare us for a new week. Make our hearts willing and able to meet others wherever they are with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be good and faithful stewards of all that you've entrusted to us. We love you so much, God, and we know it's only because you first loved us in Christ that that's even true. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.